0: Change gon' come. Yeah, what comes to your mind when I say those words? I heard an amen. What else, though? What? Slavery. Okay. Justice. Hmm. Some people think about change along a continuum. On the one side, it is too little, too late. And those are the people who needed change a long time ago, who have suffered from the status quo, and who see and feel clearly the injustices in our society. But look how far we've come, they're told. And they say, but look how far we have yet to go. And then there are those who say, well, not in my lifetime. These are people who liked it the way things were. They've experienced change as an earthquake, shaking the foundations of their life, and change threatens to crumble the house they've built, be it a mental house, a financial house, a worldview house, an institutional house. The building blocks of society used to be taken for granted, but now are assaulted. Will they withstand change? Or is the whole thing going to collapse into chaos? And people may even have both opposite views at the same time, one foot in each camp, depending on what change you're talking about. Oh, I like this change a lot, but ooh, no. That one's uh, too much. If there's one word that describes what we have gone through in the past five years or so, I think it would be the word change. As a black man living through the civil rights struggle in America, Sam Cooke expressed the realities and longings of his people when he released his seminal song in 1964, Change Gone Come. a sermon series entitled Our Bible, The Question Book. And this week's question is grammatically suspect. It's phrased in the form of a question, the first couple words, but then it immediately answers itself and then it turns the rest of the very long sentence into more of an exclamation mark. It will deal both with the status quo and with tremendous change. We're reading in 2 Peter 3 Verse, starting in verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you. In them, I am trying to arouse your sincere intention by reminding you that you should remember the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken through your apostles. First of all, you must understand this that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and indulging their own lusts, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our ancestors died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Our question is not in this paragraph, the one that we're gonna focus in on, although there is a question in there that makes us think. Peter is writing to the church to warn them about this question because it is powerfully discouraging. Where is the promise of Christ's coming? And we could also say it this, this way, where is God? Why doesn't he act? Why is he taking so long? This is a taunting question that is asked to the people of God in the Old Testament in the face of suffering and injustice. And God has made us some incredible Promises. Let's just stop there and soak that in, that God has given us some incredible, awesome, huge promises. And in this case, the scoffers are narrowing in on Jesus' promise to return after his resurrection and ascension to heaven. The Greek word for that is parousia. You may have heard that before. We call it the second coming of Christ. And when Jesus comes, he will sort everything out. Jesus will make all things right. Isn't that one of the most fantastic promises that we have been given? The original apostles understood it as eminent. They expected Jesus would return to judge this world any minute and certainly in their lifetime. But the first generation of Christians had died out without seeing the fulfillment of that promise. So where is Jesus? Is God faithful? Is Jesus true to his word? The mockers call into question the real reliability of the fundamental Christian promises. And because they had answered their own question in the negative, they believed that nothing had changed or would, nothing would ever change and they gave themselves license to indulge in their own lusts our passage said if there's no final judgment we can live according to our own wants and desires without any restriction on our behavior and they actually have a very good case now we're not scoffers but don't we ask that question when injustice persists and when wicked the wicked flourish and when we don't see god acting haven't we thought Nothing has changed and nothing will ever change. That ever crossed your mind? We bump up against our world at the worst and God doesn't break through with a miracle. Haven't we been tempted to despair when God does not answer our prayers within the time span that we deem reasonable or convenient? Oh, they're sly, these scoffers, they tap into that discontent, they tap into those wide open places, the wilderness spaces, the thirsty, barren desert lands that we must walk in faith, the land between promise and fulfillment. The place where we can't see far enough ahead to know what the answer will be one day or how it will all make sense. This is a question that all all of us must wrestle with, but the answers the mockers gave that nothing has changed from the beginning of time and therefore that in the future, no justice, no judgment, no Jesus will come. That answer is just plain wrong. And even Sam Cooke knows that this answer is wrong.
1: It's been two
0: You better watch out, you scoffers, you better have a little healthy fear, a lot of healthy awareness of your own ignorance, because you don't know either what's up there in the sky. And you're playing with fire. There's a lot we don't know, a lot we don't get to know. There is great mystery about God's plans and purposes, at least in the detail of us living them out day by day in our lives. At that level, there's a lot of mystery, and Sam Cook was smart enough to say, I don't know what's up there beyond the sky. And it looks like an admission of ignorance, but the scoffers are the ones who are the truly ignorant and foolish with their own false conclusion. Now, Peter gives a little more nuanced answer to the scoffers. Verse 5 They deliberately ignore this fact that by the word of God, heavens existed long ago and an earth was formed out of water and by means of water through which the world of that time was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been reserved for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the godless. Now, Peter shared that near eastern understanding of creation, that the earth and sky were created by pushing back the waters of a primeval ocean above and below and around the earth. And we don't quite visualize creation happening in that way, but we do know through scripture that God spoke and his word brought creation into existence. And Peter tells us that that same word, God's word upholds creation still. And furthermore, that great flood in Genesis seven was a time God judged the world. Did the scoffers forget that judgment? And God will judge again, and this time by fire. We're living in times when the destruction of the earth is not beyond our imagination. We seem to be rushing towards irreversible planet damage. And these verses just seem very relevant today. Peter will cycle in this passage, if you read it not chopped up like I'm reading, but read it all together, Peter will cycle over and over and over again to the destruction by fire many, many times in this passage. But next he just tells us that, Uh, It isn't just the word of God that upholds his promise. The character of God also explains the delay in his coming. Verse 8. But do not ignore this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. Were you listening to scripture? I bet you you were not even thinking of the words I was saying. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will be destroyed with fire and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. What accounts for the delay of the second coming of Christ? God's time is not your time. You know, I've always thought a similar phrase would be a fitting epitaph on the gravestone of several beloved family members of mine who shall remain nameless because their time is not my time. And the number of hours that I've waited... I always start out patient I have you know to leave the house or for someone to arrive I'll be ready I'll be right there certain members of my family will say and the more they are not there in my time my bitterness grows and I for one know all about patience turning to impatience and the tapping of the foot and the watching down the street every time I hear a car coming only to be disappointed Time and time again, disappointment, bitterness, impatience. Do these attitudes cross over into our relationship with God when he does not come, when he does not answer our prayers? Sometimes for years, have you had years-long prayers? When circumstances don't seem to change, God's time is not your time, is a hard lesson to learn, and yet it is a foundational lesson of faith, in which faith must be planted if it is to grow. Over 40 times we hear in the Bible, wait on the Lord. I think we have to be told that many times because that is hard to learn. God's time is not your time. God lives, God lives outside of time. Time was part of creation and God is not bound by it. And we can't imagine timelessness we can imagine not having a before and not having an after or no linear march in only one direction but just the knowledge that god is outside of time gives us enough of a pause to understand that god's perspective is very 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 different from ours and it challenges us to trust that god keeps a very long view in his plans and he knows what we do not know and he sees far beyond our capacity and he will bring about his plan when the time is right. God has another reason for delaying which is rooted in his character. God's slowness is really patience and mercy which are embedded in his character. God is giving time for all to come to repentance. God's delay is really about opening wide the doors of heaven. God would rather wait for you than punish you. That is the kind of God he is. And now we finally come to the question we really want to focus on in 2 Peter verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of persons ought you to be? That's the question. What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set ablaze and destroyed and the elements will melt with fire? But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home. Therefore, beloved, while you are waiting for these things, strive to be found by him at peace without spot or blemish and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Well, there's a lot of fire running through this passage. If we, if we lived in Texas or Kentucky right about now, the verses on the judgment as a deluge, as a flood, Flooding waters, that's what would strike home to our heart. But here in California, with our severe droughts and so many fires every year, the idea of judgment through fire is a little too close for comfort. Last summer, my family took a few, several driving trips up and down the state, and f- fire broke out everywhere we went, it seemed. In north, we went north of San Francisco and we filled our lungs up with smoke every time we went outdoors, ash fell on us there. On our trip back home, there was no stretch of highway that was free of smoke. And for hours, that's the length of California, for hours we drove through an eerie, kind of a brown, yellow, uh, smoky landscape. And then, then later on we went south to San Diego, a fire broke out there and we filled up our lungs with smoke again. Fire. We know all about it in California and Jesus' second coming means judgment. That's what that fire represents, judgment. If he's gonna put the world right then change has got to come because we can't have this mess in the new heaven and the new earth. This is what Sam Cooke sings about.
1: and i go to my brother and i say brother help me please but he
0: you got to wait for the ending of the song. We're not at the end of the sermon yet. (laughs) Got carried away. Racism doesn't belong in the new heavens and the new earth. Poverty, homophobia, social hierarchies of power do not belong in the new heavens and the new earth. Health disparities... Disease itself does not belong. Pandemics and even death do not belong in the new heavens and the new earth. Violence, hatred, wars don't belong in the new heaven and the new earth. A depleted, stripped planet, ecological disasters do not belong in the new heaven and the new earth. Can we even imagine a place where righteousness is at home. So, so much has to change in our world that Peter is telling us only a total judgment over all of creation from macro to micro levels will put it right. And then the setting, only the setting of the heavens ablaze and destroying them, Peter says, and the melting of the elements with fire. Only then will God recreate and reconfigure a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness lives. We don't talk a lot about the last days here at ABC. Some Christians fixate on how and when and the signs and the order of events. And some, some people, that's all they talk about. And I'm leaving all of that, the why, the when, the how, all of that up to others who want to spend their time arguing about that. But I think there are three really important reasons why the descriptions of the end times are in the Bible. Number one, to assure us that when the time is right, Jesus will come back again. God is indeed faithful And we can hold on to his promises because they are solid and certain. Number two, to strengthen us and comfort us, to help us hang in there in a broken world. Because knowing that there will be a new heaven, a new earth, knowing that Jesus is coming, helps us get through suffering and injustice. And number three, to warn us that there will be a judgment day. And what we do and how we act matters in our final judgment. And that's why the answer to our question, what persons ought we to be, is so very important. The stakes are very, very high. Our eternal destiny relies on how we answer it. When Jesus returns, how do you want him to find you living? What is your life going to say at that moment to him? The question is so important that Peter just blurts out. He doesn't even let us think about it for a second. He just blurts out the answer before the question mark can be put on the sentence. Look at verse 11 again. What sort of persons ought you to be in leading lives of holiness and godliness? We didn't even get a chance to puzzle out what sort of people we ought to be before he just tells us this is who you ought to be period, starts as a question and turns into an imperative. So holiness is the setting ourselves apart from the way our crooked world works. It's not looking down our noses at other people. It's not setting ourselves against others as their judge. They have a judge who's better at his job than we are and a judge who's also going to judge us by the way By the same measure, he judges them. But holiness is seeing the unjust way our world works and not participating in that social order. Not using our power to benefit only ourselves or our family. Returning good for evil. Returning love for hate. Running counter to the way that the world works. That is the setting apart of holiness that we are to be living in. And godliness is simply imitating the character of God. In this passage, it means we have learned about God's character, being patient and merciful. So let's just imitate that, being loving, patient, and merciful to everyone who comes our way. If God so loves the world that he delays judgment, wanting all to repent, do we exemplify and embody his love? Do we care that so many have not yet found Jesus? Do we tell people about Jesus out of love for them? Would anyone when they describe us say, that person showed me the love of Jesus? Now wouldn't that be a wonderful epitaph on our gravestone? That person showed me the love of Jesus. In spite of all that his people have suffered there's a surprising refrain of hope in that runs through Sam Cooke's veins. Oh! Well, you can take his word for it, or you can take God's word for it. Change gonna come. And it's gonna be terrible. And it's gonna be wonderful. You get to choose which it is for you. You can play with fire like the scoffers, or you can live holy, godly lives. That's up to you. And it's up to us as a church all together. Peter was writing to the church. He wasn't writing to people out there. He was writing to us. Will his church be ready when Jesus comes? Let's pray. Lord, we confess our apathy, our sleepiness, our not engaging with others in the way that you want us to engage with others. We confess our unreadiness and we ask that you would come into all the spaces of our lives, all the spaces of our thinking, of our hearts, of our hands, of our feet, all the spaces of our community. That you would, your Holy Spirit would pour into us your holiness, your godliness, and make us truly ready for you. And we want to say to you that we trust you even when we're waiting for you. Even when the wait is long, we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon. But if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at altabapprayerataol.com And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.